0: This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies in for Terry Gross. Reynolds Price, the acclaimed writer known for his evocative novels and stories about rural North Carolina, died in Durham yesterday. He was 77. The cause was complications from a heart attack. Price had been a paraplegic for more than 30 years due to spinal cancer, but he continued to write novels, essays, short stories, memoirs, and translations from the Bible. Price was recognized as a remarkable talent with the publication of his first novel, A Long and Happy Life, in 1962. In his New York Times obituary, novelist Alan Gergenis called Price the best young writer this country has ever produced. He started out with a voice, a lyric gift, and a sense of humor, Gergenis says, and an insight about how people lived and what they'll do to get along. Except for his years as a Rhodes Scholar in England, Price spent his life in North Carolina— teaching at Duke University, writing, and inspiring a new generation of Southern authors. Terry spoke to Reynolds Price several times over the years. Today we'll listen to portions of two of those conversations. They first spoke in 1989, when Price had written Clear Pictures, First Loves, First Guides, a memoir of his early life. In the introduction, he says, childhood memories opened up to him after he underwent hypnosis for pain relief.
1: You were getting flooded with memories
2: sort of parallel occurrence and a parallel delight was that as I worked more at home and away from the therapist, first working with a cassette recording of his voice, and then uh, with my own concentration, I just began to find that uh, great uh, rooms of memory were, were, were being opened to me. Great files were being rolled out of my unconscious. And I actually began by by getting back uh, a lot of information about a boys' summer camp in the Smoky Mountains, where I'd worked as a camp counselor when I was 20 years old. And, in fact, sat down fairly quickly and wrote a novel based on um, some of my experiences that summer, the summer of 1953. It was only after I'd done that that uh, the number of family memories and memories of my own childhood that had begun also pouring in uh, really convinced me that perhaps it was time to start writing down some of those memories. And and as I began writing them, not really planning to write a book, um, each memory that I got seemed to bring forward even more memories. It was like sort of pulling on what turned out to be a fairly endless string.
1: Now, friends had urged you after your spinal cancer, to sit down and write a memoir. And you resisted that for a long time. Why?
2: Well, I think the main reason was simply that I knew what they were saying was, you're dying, get it, down in time. And since I was working very hard on not dying, on not obeying uh, my doctors and those those people who obviously felt that my time was extremely limited, um, I was concentrating very much on... Uh, Myself and my adversary, which was spinal cancer. And uh, I wasn't about to cooperate to the extent of sort of making my last will and testament by laying out the story of my life.
1: So when you decided to write the memoir, did you just not see it in those terms?
2: Well, I was well past. I had long outlived my um, my prognosis and, and felt very strong and very full of energy, as I still do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I felt it was safe then to proceed, since I didn't suspect that it was going to be my last act above ground.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about the experience of reliving your childhood. You make a very interesting observation, which is that even, you know, a, a normal childhood is filled with all kinds of terrors. Um, and you have a paragraph about that that I'd like for you to read.
2: None of the fears I met at 51 when my life was broken like a stick across some broad but unseen knee and the fractured pieces were flung back into my numb hands to use as I could, no terror matched the childhood threats I've described. My guess is a great many people will grant the same as the trials of age fly up in their road like actual demons whose harmless shadows we met and partly tamed in Halloween games. Any soul that endures a normal childhood, not to speak of the all but unthinkable innocence lasts through torture at the hands of adults, or disease, or God, is made of strong stuff, a thing worth trusting thereafter in the dark.
1: What were the worst terrors of your childhood when you looked back on them?
2: Well, I think the worst terror of my early childhood, say from age four and five on into uh, perhaps eight or nine, was really the the, uh, the great fear that my father, who had been an alcoholic but was in, uh, in recovery from the time I was about three years old, my greatest fear was that he would return to drinking. I had never seen him in any state of inebriation and certainly never seen him actually take a drink. But I learned accidentally fairly early in my life that indeed he had had very serious problems. And uh, being the very watchful child I was and being the only child in the house until I was eight, uh, I was pretty concerned to uh, be a kind of little temperance officer on the premises.
1: How would you do that?
2: Oh, monitoring very carefully what I saw when um, when friends of my parents came over and brought bottles, uh, hanging out as long as they'd let me, and then when time came to put little Reynolds to bed feeling fairly miserable that I could no longer be in there being quite certain that he wasn't drinking. Little did I know that he was very strong in his resolve and that apparently he uh, felt no temptation to drink in the presence of these cheerful friends after football games. But I didn't know that. Children know very little about the possibility of, of change in human life. They assume that any condition is permanent and uh, cannot be altered, it seems to me. It's one of the desperate things
1: about childhood. Yeah, you make that point in your memoir, and I think it's a really interesting one. You, you say that you even wish that one of your trustworthy aunts would have tried to explain to you that time changes things and that you're not stuck in this condition, whatever the condition is at the moment, for the rest of your life. But, but I have to say that I think I had parents who tried to convince me of that, and it didn't work.
2: I, I think <laughs> I still right. feel stuck. I think I even say that perhaps it wouldn't have worked. But uh, children simply don't have the experience of time. They don't have any uh, sense of perspective. And understandably, they feel uh, they feel absolutely trapped. What they are feeling at this moment is presumably what they're going to be feeling for the rest of their lives. Uh, I had enormously happy times in my childhood. And I suppose on balance, if I look back, I would have to say that I had a serene and lovely childhood. But, but uh, that's not to... Cover the fact that that they were very bad moments indeed, and all of them i've i've at least tried to be honest about in in this memoir would
1: would you describe the vision that you had when you had your 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 spinal tumor and this was a cancerous tumor that went a good deal down the length of your spine and yeah. you, you, you do not you describe what your medical condition was then and what what the vision Ray. was?
2: Well, in the summer of 1984, it was discovered hit it, it, the, 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 the very large tumor had produced almost no symptoms, and then suddenly it began producing symptoms with great difficulty in walking and, and, and using my legs, uh, and then it was discovered that I had, beginning at my hairline in the back, and I have a fairly normal man's haircut, so I don't have the locks of Samson, but beginning at the sort of more or less end of my hairline and down for about 11 inches, uh, inside my vertebrae, in the spinal cord itself, there was this um, – there was this very malignant tumor which uh, had been in there no doubt a great many years. In fact, several of my doctors thought I had probably been born with it, that it was probably congenital and that it just had ve- developed very, very, very slowly. Uh, at that point in American surgical history uh, and amongst the neurosurgeons of Duke Hospital, uh, it was impossible to remove. Uh, they got in about 10% of it and then had to surrender me to the tender mercies of radiation. I had five weeks of of radiation. I was warned that if I went with the maximum dosage of radiation, which they hoped to give me, that I stood a very good chance of losing the use of my legs. And sure enough, within, within three weeks after the end of the ra- radiation, I had become paraplegic and have remained so ever since. However, um, a couple of days... I believe that's correct, certainly, certainly not a week, but two or three days before the radiation was to begin, I was sitting up in bed waiting for a friend to come from another bedroom in the house and get me up and, and help me get dressed. And I just um, saw myself uh, lying down by a very large lake, which I realized was what's, what in the New Testament is called the Sea of Galilee. And I realized that I was dressed in sort of modern American men's clothes, and all the men who were lying down around me were dressed in sort of <laughs> Jesus suits. And all of a sudden, one of them got up and came toward me and silently sort of beckoned me to follow him into the water, and I did. And we wound up in this lake up to our waist, and in the way that one often can in, in visions that I've read about, uh, I could see myself as though I were in a sort of mini Helicopter looming over the scene, and I could see my back, and I could see the the very bad scar that was down my back, and the the um, sort of tattooed radiation uh, lines that had been drawn around that uh, scar for the radi- to guide the radiation when that was to begin. And this man, whom I realized was Jesus, um, was just simply picking up handfuls of water out of the lake and and pouring them over that scar. And he said, um, the only thing he said initially was, uh, your sins are forgiven. And I thought, well, that's the last thing I want to hear right now. And I said, uh, am I also healed? And as though I had extracted it from him, perhaps rather against his will, he said, uh, that too. And he turned and walked away. And that was the end of the vision.
1: When the vision ended, did you test yourself to see, am I healed? And, you know, did you did you, did you see that as something like literal and medical or something more metaphoric?
2: I didn't know what I thought it meant. And I didn't know how seriously I could take it. And then you know the radiation began two or three days later, and and rather quickly uh, I began to use the use of my legs. I was already my legs were in bad shape already uh, after the surgery, and um, I um, I be- began rapidly use the u- lose the use of those legs, um, and was paraplegic in a matter of uh, of um, three within three weeks after the end of the radiation. Um, mm-hmm. So why did I go through the ra- with the radiation if I believed that Jesus had healed me in some sense uh, with this vision? I don't know. I had a fascinating letter from a woman in Mexico shortly after I published the book about that moment that it included that moment. And she said, why did you go ahead with the radiation, which may have left you crippled, when you had in fact already been healed? And the answer is I don't know why I did. Um, I, I did it because all my doctors were telling me to do it um but meanwhile at that time one of my most respected physicians told my brother that um that I probably had 18 months to live at best uh, i wouldn't let them t- give me a prognosis because i knew if they said you know x number of weeks or months or, or years i'd probably you know outrace the prognosis just to prove i could and and um that was twenty two years ago
1: so so when you had this vision, did you tell your doctors?
2: No, I didn't tell my doctor, and i don't know I don't know whom I told first. interestingly, uh, again, shortly after I published um, the book about those cancer years and mentioned that vision, I got a wonderful letter from an old very old Jesuit in India, and he had read the book and he said that he said that he trusted that i knew i had had a great privilege and he said you have seen our lord and perhaps you would tell me he said how he looks and and i could only answer in a way that 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 might have sounded um, scoffing or comical, I said. He lo- Father. He looks just like his pictures. <laughs> because <laughs> how would I have recognized him if he, you know, if he'd been seven feet tall and wearing a Harris Tweed jacket and, and corduroy trousers or something? No, he looked. He looked like Jesus in Renaissance paintings of Jesus. He was standing out there. He had no shirt on, nor did I. We were. We were in some sort of um, clothes that people would would wear to wade out into a lake. And uh, he, was, he was sort of putting these handfuls of water down my spine.
1: How do you explain that you have this vision of being healed when, when you still have like two more years of, of like really serious like pain and cancer crisis and a, a whole lifetime following that, a whole remaining lifetime of being yeah. a paraplegic? I mean, that wouldn't fit the classic definition of being healed.
2: It wouldn't. No, and I and I found out that if I were happened to be in Lourdes, France, that it would not be accepted as a miraculous <laughs> healing. <laughs> you know, Flannery O'Connor went to Lourdes, which I've always thought was very moving, but but she was not healed there. She died shortly after going there of lupus, um, though. D- despite her extreme devout Catholicism, um, I don't explain it. I I uh, I just know that it happened, and I know that. Uh, what is it? I think there's an old hymn: "God works in mysterious ways; His wonders to perform." Uh, that's all I could say. And I don't. And and, uh, and I don't go out on platforms um, presenting myself as 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 a as a visionary. Though I have indeed uh, mentioned it in in two or three books.
1: Do you think that life would be too unbearable without faith?
2: You know, I've never thought of that. Um because I never came really close to losing it. Um, I've realized that I was being almost tortured by what I thought was God, if not tortured, but I just went on waiting. I mean, I once, uh, when I was very, very, in very bad shape with this cancer in the summer of 84, as paraplegia was really becoming inevitable for me, I remember lying in bed one night and just saying... You know, to the dark. How much more of this is there going to be? How much farther is this going to go? And I think if you'd been there with with your with your tape recorder, you wouldn't have heard it. If with your own ears, you wouldn't have heard it. But I distinctly heard something that sounded like someone else's voice, a man's voice, and just said more. Uh, and there was more. And I and I and I still think that, to some extent, that was probably a communication of some sort but that's it i mean i'm not i'm not um i'm not weird i'm not religiously weird and um i'm about the most unmissionary soul you could possibly find which is probably a contradiction of saying that i'm religious but i don't feel that i have any right whatever to uh, go out into the world and try to change the the morals and the ethics of anyone else, unless that person is trying to hurt me.
1: You write in your book, I am one of the least puritanical souls presently alive on the planet. <laughs> and now I will ask you to tell me something that will prove that.
2: Whoa, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a great believer in joy. and uh, Joy I take to have as its absolute first condition that it not seriously harm another living creature.
1: And is that what makes you the least Puritanical soul alive on the Well, yeah.
2: I, don't we think of Puritans as having been sort of joyless souls wandering around Salem Mass or, or Plymouth Mass in their gray suits with large Bibles in their hands? Um, I also grew up in the South, which despite the fact that it's so frequently thought of as the Bible Belt, um has got an awful lot of joy loose in it. Uh loose and and tied down in the South. And my families, both my families, the Prices, my father's family, and the Rodwells, my mother's family, were much given to laughter and tale telling and uh playing lovely pranks on one another. So um they were good to each other in, in uh generating fun and joy around them. And I think uh yeah.
1: When you lost the loose, the use of your legs about twenty years ago, yeah. as a result of the spinal cancer and the procedures that you had to 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 kill the cancer, um, right. did you have to find alternate ways of experiencing joy?
2: I did. I'm going to say one thing, and I'd 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 like not to go beyond that, which is one thing I had to give up immediately was was my sexual life because paraplegia. Takes care of that rather rapidly, but um, yeah, I had to invent all sorts of other forms. I mean, I had to figure out how to uh, you know move across a room. I had to learn how to work a wheelchair. I had to learn how to uh, you know get in and out of the bathroom, in and out of the shower. Um, just all those extremely practical things, and then and then uh, on up and down from there. And I said in that that book I wrote about my cancer. Um, which is called A Whole New Life, I said, you know, one of the most valuable things that that someone could have done for me once I got past the initial shock of the surgery and the radiation would, would have been if someone whom I could have trusted would have walked in my room and simply said, Reynolds Price is dead. Who do you propose to be tomorrow? Because Reynolds Price was dead. The person I'd thought of as me in so many ways, obviously huge parts of me survived. Thank God. But um, I, I had to reinvent, I don't know what, more than 60% of the way Reynolds Price lived and did things.
1: Can I ask what are some of the things that give you the most joy now?
2: Being with people I love is primary, but that's hardly new to Reynolds Price and any of his avatars. Um, I don't think there's anything new. It's It's all the old things, music. Um, theater, being with friends, uh, teaching—I I mean, obviously, I wouldn't have taught for forty-eight years if I hadn't loved it. I could certainly have, you know, made donuts if, if it had come to that. But loved ones, friends, and loved ones above all. And thank God, I've got a—I've got a good supply.
1: Just one more thing. If, if I'm remembering correctly, in in your book, you you you, you say that you think maybe you were. Se- selected, chosen, I- I'm forgetting the word that you use, but but kind of singled out for this affliction that you had?
2: That may be the case because I've often asked myself, if I could now, knowing what I know about the last 22 years, if I could be presented with a sort of magical retroactive pair of buttons which would say bypass paraplegia or... Continue with. I feel most of the time I'd press the continue with button because as, as as difficult as it's been and as painful as it's been, it's been tremendously interesting. Maybe that means I'm the largest masochist you'll ever talk to. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think
0: I'd press the continue with button. Writer Reynolds Price speaking with Terry Gross in 2006. Price died yesterday. He was 77.